Well, friends, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open there in Joshua chapter 2. And if you haven't had the chance yet to grab a sermon outline, feel free to, to go there to the welcomers table. They're printed out there along with pens for you to, to take and to take notes this morning. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? Is it okay to say you're a little bit older or younger than you really are to get a cheaper ticket price? To not quite tell the, the whole story when it comes to that insurance claim? Exaggerate your experience in a job interview? How about fudging the numbers in your tax return to get a bigger refund? Or every husband's worst nightmare. Do you tell the truth when you're asked, does my bottom look big in this? Those are pretty easy scenarios, though, aren't they? I think, generally speaking, we know that in all of those cases, it's right and appropriate to tell the truth. How about this one, though, that's just a little bit harder? The dilemma faced by a man named Richard. Richard's father made a dying request of his son. Promise me that after I'm gone, you'll take care of my horses. Promise me you'll feed them, groom them, do whatever it takes to keep them healthy. In love, with his father about to pass, Richard gives his word. After six months, though, the money that his father had left to take care of the horses had gone. Richard borrows money to fulfill his promise, but eventually that runs out too. He can't afford to care for these horses and also provide for his wife and children. Is Richard morally obligated to keep his promise to his father? or to care for his family, because he can't do both. Our message today had its origin at kick at Katoomba Youth Convention that our youth and some of our youth are here this morning, went to earlier this year. This year, kick focused on the book of Joshua, including the narrative that Peter just read for us. And as we saw with Ryan last week, the, the book of Joshua raises some hard questions for us about God, about ourselves, and about morality. And our teenagers perceptively identified one of those issues. Rahab seems to be rewarded for lying here in this passage. Is that right? And if so, does that mean that it's okay to lie? Those are great questions, perhaps, and I hope they're questions that you yourself has, have asked. As you've read this passage in the past. And so that's what we're going to look at together today. Now, let me say right up front this morning, this is a much contested question in Christian ethics. It might seem like a simple one to you, perhaps, but a number of good, 
godly people have studied this issue and have landed in different places, and, and that's okay. It might be that you hit the end of our time together this morning and you entirely disagree with where I've landed. That's entirely okay. We don't need to break communion over that. What I'm trying to do for you today is to, to model how you might then go away and look at other challenging ethical issues in the scriptures. And so I want to say right up front for you this morning, this is not a sermon, okay? This morning, this is more a, a workshop or a seminar. I don't want you to, to feel disappointed. that you, you aren't going to walk away today with three key points to apply into your life. I don't want you to expect that. The model that I'm showing you, the process that we're walking through, the approach, that is the takeaway. And so I want to encourage you this morning to perhaps more than normal, to work hard and, and, and stay engaged with me. I know that's going to be a challenge for those of you who had a body party last night and you've had four hours sleep, but I, if you kind of drift off for five minutes this morning and then come back, I feel as though you're going to have lost the flow. So please work hard to stay with me. Okay, with that as our foundation, let's start with the very reason we need to think about this the very foundation of our study, and it's this. God hates lying. That won't come as a surprise to anyone. God hates lying. Lying's contrary to God's character. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie, we're told in 1 Samuel 15, 29. The ninth commandment forbids us giving false testimony. And if we think, if we're tempted to think that, that lying is one of those small sins, take a look at what we read in Revelation 21. It's lying is such a serious offense to God's holiness. Its consequence is eternal punishment in hell. Revelation 21 verse 8, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The scriptures are clear, aren't they? God loves the truth and hates lies. That's the foundation, the doctrinal foundation of our study here in Joshua chapter 2 today. Whereas we saw with Peter just a moment or two ago, where Joshua, who is the, the leader of Israel and the general of Yahweh's army, sends two spies on a reconnaissance mission into the promised land. Israel was about to begin its conquest, the conquest that we studied in detail last week. And so, so as to know how to best to conquer the land, Joshua sends in two spies to assess the strength of Jericho. And these two spies go into the prostitute Rahab's house. Rahab's house was a part of the city wall, so no doubt it was a good vantage point. But also, and perhaps more practically, it was a place that they hoped, as travelling men, they could enter and then leave and remain anonymous. 
that their attempt at covert intelligence fails. And the king of Jericho is told where they are. And so, verse 3. This is Joshua chapter 2, verse 3. Please read with me. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now friends, the heart of our study today is the way that Rahab responds to the king's envoy from verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, whose allegiance was meant to be to the city of Jericho, gives refuge to the spies. She hides them and she redirects the king, she misdirects, sorry, the king's envoy. She lies about not knowing where the spies had come from. She lies about their departure. And then she deliberately sends the king's representatives off in the wrong direction. Make no bones about it, friends. She lied which God hates. But yet, flick with me in your Bibles to James, right to the other end of the Bible, to James chapter 2. I want you to actually see these words on the page in front of you, not just hear them. James 2, 25. Keep all that we've just read and seen in your minds. And James says this, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? What are we to make of Rahab's actions? Were they righteous, as James tells us here, or in fact, very unrighteous? And by implication, do we have an obligation to tell the truth in every circumstance, regardless of the consequences? Is deception ever appropriate? What do you think? Is it morally acceptable to put a beware of the dog sign out the front of your house even though you don't have a dog? For a woman to call out to her pretend husband to come for help when she's being attacked by a rapist. For the Allies to deceive Hitler about the timing and location of the Normandy invasion in the Second World War. How about the police? 
is it morally appropriate for them to conduct undercover investigations or drive unmarked cars, which by their very nature are designed to deceive about intent, aren't they? Is deception ever appropriate? I think there are three broad positions we can take. The first, and you'll see all of these come up on the screen behind me, the first is that it is never, ever permissible to deceive. And under that approach, Rahab certainly lied in this situation. Even though God took, even though God turned it for good, she sinned by taking circumstances into her own hands. That's the first approach. The second is that Rahab found herself here in a situation where she had to choose the lesser of two evils. She had to choose between either lying or letting the spies be killed. And so whilst she sinned, she chose the right option, the one that had the least negative consequences. That's our second option. And a third position, which is that in some very limited situations, deception isn't just permissible, but actually the right course of action. Those are our three broad positions on the spectrum we can take. Let's just think about those options just for a moment or two. Now, the first one. The first one, that might sound like the right answer. You know, Jesus, God, the Bible. The, the right answer for us as Christians, that all deception is sin. But just think about the implications of that for a second or two. If all deception is sin, that means that footballers are sinning when they throw a dummy on the football field. You know, pretending to pass, but running with the ball instead. That would mean that leaving the lights on at home when you go out at night to make it look like you're still there, that that would be sinful. It means our army sins when they don camouflage. That's designed to deceive the enemy into thinking they aren't there, isn't it? And ladies, how many of you are wearing makeup this morning? Surely that's an act of deception too. I'm not going to follow that line any further though. I value my life too much for that. Do you see though that that's an impossible position to live out? But not only that, I also don't think it's the position of the scriptures either. So we're going to discount that one. So is there ever a situation where a falsehood is not a lie? The scriptures seem to show that in fact there are situations where deception is ethically permissible, perhaps even good. And I think a helpful way for us to think about this is to see that there can be a distinction between a falsehood and a lie. There's a difference between a falsehood and a lie. Now, whilst all lies are falsehoods, not all falsehoods are lies. You wishing you had that cup of coffee before you left home now? Let me explain. This is the definition of a lie from the American theologian Sam Storms, and it will come up behind me. A lie is an intentional falsehood 
that violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are cases in which people forfeit their right to know the truth. So the question is not whether it is ever morally permissible to lie, but what is a lie? And he goes on to say, a lie is the intentional declaration or communication of a falsehood designed to deceive someone who has a moral and legal right to know the truth. I suspect that most of us would intuitively agree with that, even if we haven't really thought about it before. This is how the great theologian R.C. Sproul put it. We are obliged always... Let me apologise. That, that is a terrible slide that I've prepared for you. We are obliged always to tell the truth to whom the truth is due. We are always to tell the truth when righteousness and justice requires us to tell the truth. But we are not required to tell the truth to someone who has no right to it. In this circumstance, her, speaking of Rahab, her duty is to protect these representatives of God from the wickedness of the king of Jericho. And so, her civil disobedience and her lie are both justified because she is obeying the mandate she has from God. Friends, I think there are situations where people are not entitled to the truth or else they have forfeited their right to the truth. And in those circumstances, deception, I would say, is permissible. To take it an entirely trivial example, when you're playing sport, say for example, it's entirely appropriate to expect that your opposition is going to deceive you within the laws of the game. Spin bowling in cricket is, is based on that entirely, isn't it? Spinning the ball with various turns and force is designed to deceive the batsman. A more serious example that I know that some of you have thought about during the week might be seeing someone run away from a murderous man with a knife. Now, you see where that person hides, and then the murderous man comes up to you and asks where the person has gone. I don't think any of us would answer truthfully, would we? Exposing the location of the person and then certain harm. The man with the knife, by virtue of his intent to do harm, has waived his right to the truth. Just like a criminal caught in an undercover sting by virtue of the fact that they're breaking the law, they've forfeited their right to full disclosure. I think we see this play out in the scriptures. The best example is probably that of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. So please turn there with me in your Bible now. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read from, from verse 15. Exodus chapter 1, from verse 15. There's nothing better than the sound of the pages of a Bible turning. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
whose names were Shipra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Let's just stop there for a moment. In commanding these Hebrew midwives to commit murder, I think we can all agree that Pharaoh has lost his right to the moral high ground, hasn't he? Let's keep reading from verse 18. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Friends, the Hebrew midwives intentionally deceived Pharaoh. Now, the fact is, there may have been a portion of truth in that. Maybe it was that the Israelites gave birth just that little bit faster. But look, let's not kid ourselves. There are plenty of ladies in the room. The Hebrew midwives had a lot of time, did they not, to go from their house to the birthing stool. You know? They would have got there in time. This is, this is clearly intentionally deceiving Pharaoh. And what happens? They were blessed by God as a result. God gives a positive verdict on their actions. He doesn't rebuke them for their sin. He doesn't correct them for their deception. No, he positively blesses them for their actions. Let's take a look if that approach holds water as we evaluate Rahab and her actions here. Was Rahab's deception justified? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we need to ask another one first. Why did she lie? Why did she lie? Now, whilst the scriptures don't give us an explicit answer to that question, I think they they give us enough to see. In Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that we often call the hall of faith, In verse 31, we're told this about Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The word that's translated disobedient there at the end of verse 31 also means unbelieving. Some of your Bibles might actually have that as a footnote. And that's crucial because In Joshua 2, what we see is that Rahab was a believer in the Lord. We don't know how it was that she came to faith. We don't know how long she'd been a believer. But she was a believer in the Lord, a believer in Yahweh. In contrast to normal Canaanite belief, the Canaanites believed that each god had jurisdiction over a particular geographic portion of land. Take a look at what what Rahab declares to the spies in verse 11. She makes a declaration that the Lord your God 
is God in heaven above and on the earth below. It's an amazing declaration she makes. She makes a declaration that, unlike the piddly Canaanite gods, that Yahweh was the God of the entire universe, that the earth was his. She recognized that Yahweh, she even uses God's personal name, that Yahweh was God. She firmly believed that God would destroy Jericho. She was in no doubt that these spies had been sent by God, that he was going to give Israel the land, and that she wanted to be part of that as well. What we see here, friends, is a change of allegiance. Rahab, by faith, aligns herself with Israel and her God. She defects to Israel. So I think we we can conclude that her deception was a result of her faith in God. She didn't lie. She deceived her military opponents. And so, in my view, she didn't sin in this circumstance. You see, I think to hold otherwise raises some serious questions for us about why Rahab was included in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Just think about it. All we really know about Rahab is what we find in Joshua chapter 2. And I just don't see that the scriptures would include her in this hall of faith if the one thing that we knew about this woman was that she was sinful and faithless. Now, I think she's held up in that chapter because she is an example of faith for us to follow. Just like those Hebrew midwives that we looked at earlier. Rahab is portrayed as a faithful follower of Yahweh who defied an edict to murder innocent Israelite males, hiding the innocent from a murderous king. The parallels with those Hebrew midwives are striking, aren't they? That's one of the reasons why I'm personally not convinced that but by those who claim that what Rahab did was wrong, but that God just used it for his purposes to achieve good. Because do you remember what we read back in James chapter 2? In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? I'd encourage you to to read James chapter 2 this afternoon. Because what you'll see is that in the context of that chapter, James appeals to to Rahab as an example of good works flowing from saving faith. He's saying that her faith and her actions aligned, that they came together. To me, that implies that her actions were equally good. Friends, it seems to me as though the scriptures, they don't just ignore. They actually applaud Rahab for misleading the unrighteous king of Jericho to protect the spies. And for what it's worth, that's why I don't believe that Rahab's actions were simply the lesser of two evils. I think the scriptures actually applaud her actions. It seems to me that the narrator here in Joshua very intentionally focuses in on the faith that Rahab possessed, not the truth that she concealed. 
Did you notice that as, as Peter read earlier? After verse 7, the narrator exclusively focuses on Rahab's confession of faith and the spy's promise of salvation. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount, but it is the Sermon on the Roof. Her knowledge of Yahweh comes to the fore. This is a woman who knew of and knew God. Whereas she told the envoy that she didn't know who the spies were or where they had gone. In a, in a beautiful play on words, she knows the power of Israel's God. She knows the promise of the land to Israel. She knew Israel's God. And so she was saved, even as the city was destroyed. A couple of cautions as we tie this together. Been worried about this throughout the week. Please don't come away from today with anything less than a complete commitment to the truth. If you're going to start looking for loopholes or for wiggle room every time you're tempted to lie, I have failed you today. Because you know what, my brothers and sisters? The sad reality is there aren't many of us that face the problem of being too honest. Too many of us lie far too often. Whilst there are, as I've argued this morning, situations where it is morally permissible to communicate a falsehood, those situations are few and far between. We should never be casual when it comes to the truth. So we read in Psalm 15 at the start of our service, one of the, the qualities of those who are privileged to dwell in the presence of God is speaking the truth from your heart. We must prize truth and work towards it. And let me say, whilst I think we can rightly conclude that the Hebrew midwives and Rahab did act morally in their deception, please see, they did it on the, moral, on the morally correct side. It's a very different thing to deceive for a wicked purpose or for self-interest. That's never right. Is it ever okay to lie? Well, I think that the scriptures show us that there are times where it is morally permissible to withhold the truth from those who have no right to it. But you know what? As I've been studying this passage and preparing for today, I've come to the conclusion that I actually don't think that that is what we're meant to take away from Rahab's story. That's not what we're meant to actually marvel at in these chapters. God wants us to marvel more, my brothers and sisters, that here in this story, God takes a Canaanite prostitute, a woman who was outside of the promises of God, who found herself outside of his people, who came to faith in Yahweh as the one true God, and as a consequence, was grafted into his people who ultimately became a part of the line of the Messiah. A repentant sinner, just like us, grafted in to the true vine by the sacrifice of our Lord. That's the heart of Rahab's story.
May all glory be to God. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we confess that as we come to your word, there are times where we are far too flippant, far too relaxed, where we find ourselves unwilling to do the hard work of seeking to reconcile things that might seem at first glance to be contradictory, to gloss over those things that might seem to impugn your character or what you have said elsewhere. Lord, we want to be diligent students of your word. We don't want to be those who will just land on an opinion based on a gut feeling and it be nothing more than that. We want to search the scriptures. We want to know the scriptures. We want the scriptures to examine our hearts, our, our, our expectations that we might be shaped by your word. Lord, I pray that this lived example this morning of Rahab, that that might stir us to tackle perhaps some of those things that we've just let sit aside. That it might have removed the fear of, of our faith being undermined by seeming contradictions. No, Lord, your word is true. It is infallible. It is consistent. And we thank you that when we work hard in it, we can see how it all dries, all comes together under your headship and your sovereignty. Lord, we want to be men and women, boys and girls who are committed to the truth. We confess that we found that we find it far too easy to take the escape route and to lie when a difficult conversation is required, to serve our own interests by misleading or deceiving. Lord, that is entirely inconsistent with your character. And we pray that you might wipe that from us by the power of your spirit. We want to reflect you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we want to walk in your footsteps, our Lord. And we pray all of this, that Jesus might be glorified. And in his name, amen.